Paratooth Radio is a proud member of Evergreen Podcasts on KillerPodcast.com. Hey, Paratruthers. This week's episode is brought to you by our patrons over on Patreon.com forward slash Paratruth. With their help, we are continuing to bring amazing new content to our listeners every week. So if you feel the urge to donate, head on over to Patreon.com forward slash Paratruth, where you can just donate only a dollar and get some amazing rewards for your donation. Go check it out. Christian and non-Christian paranormal investigators. They have two different views. And it seems as if neither of them can ever agree on anything. So what happens when a mainstream view of the paranormal crosses paths with the Christian view? And welcome to a brand new episode of Paratruth Radio. My name is Eric. And I'm Justin. And today we have a guest with us. His name is Richard Estep. He is the author of The Devil's Coming to Get Me, The Haunting of Melvern Manor. So without further ado, let's go right ahead and jump into this interview. Richard, welcome to the show. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. Uh, so we have you on to talk about your book, The Devil's Coming to Get Me, The Haunting of Melvern Manor. Uh, th- this series that we're running right now is about all the different hauntings around the world. Some of the most, uh, I guess, some of the most active hauntings. And yeah. you dove into Melvern Manor, and apparently it's been a lot of things throughout its history. Uh, why don't we begin by just telling us a little bit as to why you decided to research and write a book on this particular location? Well, I, I was intrigued with Melvin Manor ever since I saw it on the TV show Paranormal Lockdown. Uh, it looked like quite a location. Um, it wasn't that far from me. It was maybe a nine-hour drive. And uh, I had a couple of friends that knew the owner. So I asked him, I said, hey, I'm looking for a new book project, and you have an intriguing place. Also, it's, it's a retirement home. And I'd never really... Uh, with one exception, investigated um, and a location like that before. So this place had been a hotel, uh, had quite the history to it, was a nursing home at one point. Then it lost its license to, to deliver medical care for various reasons. And so ended up becoming a, a retirement home. So they finally closed the doors and the place just began to, to fall into ruin. And so I thought, how many people have lived? Um, at this place over the years, how many people were passing through on the railroads? How many people spent their lives, you know, staring out of those windows? What are some of the stories of those people that I could, I could learn about? And so, you know, it started from there. All right. So it, it looks like it has been a lot of things, and you just mentioned that, and it actually was kind of erected in the late 1800s. So going through the research, um, what type of deaths or or uh, even lives did you find going on there that could have created some of the activity that goes on there? Well, you did not have this history of, of violent death or anything like that that some of the locations I've investigated had. Right. Um, but if you take a like that over the decades, people pass away naturally in, in retirement homes on a fairly regular basis. So you had this just long, unbroken chain of years where people would have been passing away naturally. And um, I thought that that would add up to some pretty interesting emotional fuel for paranormal activity. And I was right. It absolutely did. Hmm. Now, we noticed that through all of the different hauntings throughout the world that much, I guess, often we see places like this, whether it's manners or or uh, nursing homes, penitentiaries, all that kind of stuff seem to have more hauntings than your typical house uh, that tends to go back just as far. Why do you think that is? Well, firstly, it's volume. You have many more people living there. Um, and you, when you look at what goes on in the average house, people are very busy 
for the most part at home. They're dashing around, you know, they're looking after the kids, they're trying to relax after work, they're leading a busy life. Whereas in places like a retirement home, you have people that spend a lot of time in that environment. Uh, and most of their emotion and most of their activity is concentrated there. So I think that it adds up over the years in the same way that you look at a, a stream or a river that erodes the riverbanks over the years, just constantly flowing and constantly flowing. I think there's a degree of that going on in a residential institution. And the more people you have in it, the more that effect is pronounced. Hmm. What is some of the activity that you experienced while you were there? Well, we've been there maybe half an hour, 20 minutes, half an hour. Um, one of my female investigators, her ear began to bleed from a laceration that she sustained, oh, wow. um, which we never did explain. Uh, she has long hair that comes down over her ears. So if she had caught her, her ear on a, a door frame and she was coming through it, she would have known it. Um, right. She wasn't the sort of person to scratch at her ears either. So certainly not hard enough to draw blood. You know, mm. so uh, that was one of the first things that that, that happened to us. We thought that was kind of a welcome <laughs> look out, if you will. <laughs> but uh, over over the next four days and nights, we got things like uh, footsteps prowling around uh, that seemed to be following us around the building. And we've been warned by a number of paranormal investigators that knew the manor well. They said this place likes to play cat and mouse games, so you'll go over to this wing. And you'll hear activity above you or in the other wing. And a good example is, you guys might know Johnny Hauser. He's a um, fairly well-known and very respected investigator who is the um, lives next door to the Villisca Axe Murder House. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know? And Johnny, yes, Johnny has some personal history with Malvin Manor. And so uh, I'd hoped he'd come join us, but turns out he was committed to do something else. But he had just some spare time. He was sitting in the, the living room of the Villisca Axe Murder House. And he agreed to uh, phone in. I, I conference called him in to uh, to the nursing home wing at uh, Malvin. And we were asking questions. And as we would ask questions at Malvin Manor over the phone, Johnny was hearing thuds and bangs coming from above his head in answer at the Velisca Axe Murder House. Mm. Kind of impressed us. Wow. And a lot of people have posited a link between these two buildings because to this day, nobody knows who, who did the murders at Villisca, who killed those eight people. But it's been posited by several that um, it may have been somebody who was riding the railroads, a serial killer that was basically a hobo that went across the United States, um, would get off at certain stops and kill people randomly and then move on. Um, certain killings throughout the American Midwest and here in Colorado Springs uh, had the same MO, and they were all very close to railroad railroad stations. So Malvin Manor, before it was a uh, retirement home and a nursing home, was actually a hotel that was designed to take care of business travelers on the railroad. You know, when it took you days and days to get across the United States. So it had been theorized that because Malvin is just an hour away from Villisca, that the uh, the killer may have spent the night at Malvin Manor before or after committing the crime. Hmm. Hmm. Well, now, do you think with that said that there could be some kind of portal that links the two together or is it just simply more of a physical element uh, that once was connected and now is more of a residual thing? That's a great theory, actually, and, and I wouldn't um, like to bet money either way. I think a lot more research on this is needed. Um, I've used some non-traditional methods. So, for example, we did use a Ouija board at, uh, at Malvern Manor. And I asked outright, you know, is there a, is there a connection between the murders of Villisca and Malvin Manor? Did the killer stay here? And, um, we got a very definite, strong yes mm-hmm. in answer to that question. But of course, whether you believe that or not comes down to how much faith you put in Ouija boards and those kind of things. Right. Hmm. So one thing that interests me was the title of the book, and I'd love to hear your input as to how you came up with that the devil's coming to get me. Absolutely. Um, so the devil's coming to get me was a title I thought that was too good not to use. Uh, essentially there was a lady named uh, Gracie that she had her own room. It's known as Gracie's room to this day. So it's downstairs off of the main hallway. And Gracie was a very nice um, older lady, except she uh, suffered from multiple personality disorder. And so New nurses would often come on, on duty and they would say, who is the man in Gracie's room talking to her this late at night? 
because they heard a, a male voice and the voice would be very gruff and it would always say the same thing the devil's coming to get me but again and of course when uh, when they would go and check the voice was coming from Gracie herself uh, and so one night the nurses decided that they would try and chart as many of those personalities the different ones that she would present as possible and so over the course of just one hour the nurses documented 13 distinct personalities that Gracie was, was slipping into and speaking with their voice so when I'd heard the devil's coming to get me was the most prominent and, and frequent thing she said it just seemed like a very compelling title for a book Right. Well, now, 13 distinct voices is actually very interesting. I mean, both in the uh, the sense that it's the number 13, many people think it's bad luck, but also in regards to the whole idea of the devil. I mean, it's in correlation to the apostles uh, and Jesus Christ, 13 of them total. Uh, do you think there's any type of possibility that these are demonic entities possessing the woman or if it was just simply a mental disorder and nothing more? Uh, I'm definitely in the second second camp, and uh, I'll tell you why. Firstly, according to the documentation, it was 13 distinct personalities that were documented during this one session. It doesn't mean that there weren't more. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so you know, 13 is the number that they recorded during this one session, but it could easily have been 15, 17, 18, 20. There are instances on record of multiple personality disorder patients um, evincing 20 and 30. A personality. So I wouldn't personally attach any significance at all to that number. Um, I just think it's extremely high when you consider they sat with her at a relatively short period of time. That's a lot of different personalities that are coming in in, in that period. Now, you mentioned the demonic. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, much of it, again, depends upon your personal belief system, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, I tend not to use the word demonic often because I think it has certain religious connotations. Uh, and as, a, as an agnostic, I don't really have that belief system. But I do find the evidence for the existence of non-human entities compelling. And it's been theorized by a number of people that there is a non-human entity on the second floor at Malvern Manor. And uh, it appeared to follow two of my investigators when they were up there alone. They felt engulfed, for want of a better word, in some kind of very negative energy field. And uh, this thing practically chased them down the stairs. Wow. Hmm. Now, was there any other documentation from when it was a mental hospital of anybody else having any type of interactions, um, even even if it was just the mental disorder or even a, a paranormal? I mean, because obviously it would, it's been around a while. So, I and I guess you can give me your opinion on this too. Um, I, I do feel that paranormal stuff kind of happens and attacks people with mental disabilities and mental disorders. Do you think that had a factor in all that? Um, as a medical professional myself, it's, again, it's difficult to say. I will say this, though. It, it does appear in some cases that um, even having, um, and I'll speak about depression, Mm-hmm. Only because I'm a diagnosed depressive myself, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and a number of people I've spoken to on this subject have said that if you do suffer from uh, depression or any kind of, of emotional, behavioral, mental disorder, that you are more vulnerable to those kinds of external influences. Um, can I definitively say that that's true or not true? No, but it does seem like a reasonable proposition to me. So I want to move forward a little bit here. Uh, one thing that is mentioned in your book is a haunted doll. And I've noticed that over the years, haunted dolls seem to be growing more and more common, especially here in the U.S., but also around the, uh, the world. Uh, what do you think it is about dolls and being haunted? Well, firstly, let me ask you this, and I apologize because my mom always said it was rude to answer a question with a question. Um, but. Which of this do you fellows think um, relates to the prominence of Annabelle and those kind of movies in in the mass media? Because I know that we saw an increase, a massive increase in quote-unquote demonic um, hauntings after they became the case of the week on certain TV shows. Mm-hmm. 
Do you see what I mean? Do you think that the media is, is, is having a, a role in this? Or I think they're having a huge role in it, yeah. I agree, yeah. So are the cases really increasing, or are we just seeing people interpreting them in that way? I mean, we wouldn't really know unless we're able to get out there and test them all, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, and it's, it's kind of an interesting... No, it's a very interesting question. I don't know. I do believe for sure... Basically, you have three types of haunting, don't you? A haunted uh, person, a haunted place, and a haunted object. Mm-hmm. So do I think that a doll is any more likely to be haunted than any other object? That I'm not sure about. Why would that be the case? Other than the fact that it looks it, it's vaguely human-shaped. Um, but dolls are typically associated with children, and we know that children do seem to be very much more prone to um, being able to see um, paranormal entities, spirit entities, and communicate with them. So that may be that. It may be uh, the link with children that, that makes them more prevalent. Hmm. Well, the one thing that um, I, I said on a, a past episode not too long ago is a lot of people will link child spirit to demon. And it's funny to think about because... If if you're saying okay, adult spirit, not demon, child, demon, it doesn't make any sense to me. Now, in your opinion, in in all of the investigations that you have done, even this one, um, has it ever come across to you that a child spirit is somehow a demonic entity where the other spirits are not, or vice versa? You know. I- it's interesting that you bring that up because I had this debate with several people about at Melvin Manor um, because of the spirit of Inez, um, which I'm sure you recall from the book. Um, so if I may talk about her briefly, sure. Inez was a young girl that, um, that was found hanging in a closet. And for the longest time, it was said that Inez was found hanging at Melvin Manor because she does seem to haunt the place. Many investigators have, um, have encountered what seems to be the spirit of a young girl. Uh, she's heard running up and down the hallways when the place is empty. Many investigators have heard this. She, you get EVPs that say Inez, Inez. Uh, you'll hear her name come through the spirit box. And um, if you're using SLS cameras, you'll often see these very small um, uh, human-shaped stick figures. And then when the owner, uh, one of the owners, Josh Hurd, uh, paid a, an investigator, a private investigator, to do some research into the background of the manor and its history, they found that Inez had not died at Melvin Manor at all, as they had thought. Inez had died in a private residence several blocks away. So that all begs the question then, who or what is this child entity, or or what seems to be a child entity, that's communicating with investigators, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, One theory that I'm rather fond of is it could be a thought form, because the story has been told so many times over and over again that and visitors have essentially created their own ghost in much the same way as the, the Philip experiment did in Canada. But there's also the more concerning possibility, isn't there? And I'm sure you see where I'm going with this, that something is masquerading as this young girl mm-hmm. um, for its own purposes. Well, even if it is a thought form, I mean, any anything that hears the stories, whether it's an entity or we're creating it, Eventually, an entity would ch- attach onto that thought form anyways because so many people are talking about it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's basically a free a source of, of fuel, isn't it? Or energy or power, or whatever you want to call right. it. Right. Uh, and if you offer a free meal, something is going to take that free meal. Exactly. <laughs> <clears throat> well, now, and this is something that I think Justin and I have talked about a few times on the show. Uh, but when it comes to hauntings... Uh, let's just say in this case, it's a house or something where nobody lives, but people come to visit occasionally, occasionally. Yeah. What is the reason for the spirits living in that particular location instead of moving out and doing something else, especially if they're intelligent hauntings? That's a great question. And, and I get asked this when I talk about Asylum 49, one of my favorite locations, because that's a, um, a haunted house attraction that's very busy over Halloween. Mm-hmm. and then very quiet for the rest of the year. And I, I think that we operate under the assumption, maybe the false assumption, that 
spirits work uh, on the same type. They have the same uh, type of understanding of time that you and I did. Uh, you know, um, mm-hmm. I don't think they, I talk to mediums anyway that, that tell me this is the case. They don't necessarily have 24 hours in the day and seven days a week and 365 days. So number one, they may, time may pass differently for them. And number two, it may also be that um, they're not bound by the same laws of physics that, that we are. So they're not always in residence. Maybe they're off doing other things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, why would you want to hang around in an empty building? For right. Yeah. And <laughs> it's, it's, it's not the, the life I'm hoping for. <laughs> no, <not> at all. <laughs> so what, what type of, um, compared to your, your other investigations, what was different about Melbourne? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think the nature of the location, the fact that um, this isn't a hospital, let's say, because I've kind of become the haunted hospital guy um, yeah. somehow. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't a hospital in the truest sense. It did have a medical wing, but not for all that long. Uh, and it was closed down because it didn't meet certain state regulations. But um, you have a community of people that were, Melvin Manor was the safety net for the, the sick and the disenfranchised of, of five counties. Um, so you would have people who, who didn't have anywhere else to go would end up there, you know? And most uh, locations like this, they have a reputation for this just terrible, um, horrific history. But there, there seemed to be a real sense of, of family at Melvin Manor. And when I was in the town eating, uh, I'd go to a local cafe, which is awesome. If you go have the barbecue burger, it's superb. <laughs> and I talked to one of the waitresses, and she said, uh, "Oh, I remember those people. They were so nice. They would uh, they would come out for the, with their carers, and you would see them. They'd be so nice and so friendly." And and I think that you have all of this emotion over the years, you know, and a real sense of a family atmosphere. All these people living together twenty four seven, three sixty five, and I think they've left something behind. Um, whether it's just a remnant or a residue or whatever you want to call it. And I think we can still tap into that today. And there are also a number of mysteries about Malvern Manor that just haven't haven't been solved yet. Uh, a good example would be that there is an entity that goes by the name of uh, Number One. He turned up on Spirit Box sessions. It seems to be a male voice. Uh, he turned up on Spirit Box sessions about the same time as Rose the Haunted Doll came to the manor and seems to be um, a pretty nasty, pretty aggressive, overbearing individual. We're wondering if it's the same negative force that seems to reside primarily on the second floor. And um, number one does not seem to be a resident or an employee or anyone like that. He seems he or it seems to be something else entirely. And one thing that I've talked to some of the investigators at Malvin about, people like Lewis and Robin, Sarah and Josh, those guys are all fascinated by what is the identity of this particular spirit. So there are mysteries still to solve. Malvern Manor, and I'm pretty sure I'm not done with the place yet. <laughs> it's interesting that it chooses the name number one because it makes me think of Star Trek. <laughs> you know, I did the same, the same thing. The Star Trek just came right, yeah, out of the, the forefront where I had to Your nerd is showing, gentlemen, and that's a good thing. <laughs> Well, no, you, you mentioned the voice box, and that's something that Justin and I used to use on our investigations back when we had an investigative team. Uh, we always used it as more of a guiding source, never as a source of evidence. Uh, where do you sit w- w- with that particular device? I think it's a tool like anything else, and I think that much as pareidolia is a problem when it comes to photographs, I think the audio pareidolia is a real big issue with the voice box. Um, it's very, it's very tempting, isn't it? To, to hear what you want to hear. It um, is. It is. And I think you have to be very careful of that. So like anything else, I think there is no one tool that the paranormal investigator really has in, in their arsenal that will provide definitive evidence. I think if you take it with uh, a grain of salt, like any other method, the voice box can be a very valuable tool. Just don't put an undue amount of um of of stock in what it tells you. Mm-hmm. 
I'm glad you say that because we had done an investigation um, and I didn't have like it hooked to a speaker or anything. I had it hooked to headphones and somebody else was listening to it at the time. And they had said that they heard something about a diary. Now, I will divulge that this was at Jeffrey Dahmer's family home where he grew up and where he killed his first victim, Stephen Hicks. And okay, it was supposedly... I mean, to, it was supposed to be, obviously, uh, the voice of uh, Jeffrey Dahmer. And it got leaked to the client that, because the client was there, that there was something said about this diary. And he wanted to write a book about Jeffrey Dahmer's life. And okay. so I had to search through this this recording because I was recording it on top of people being able to hear it. And nowhere did I hear book or diary. And I think that too many times that we've done investigations, evidence has been leaked to the client prior to us going over stuff and it gets excited. And I think you saying that exact point of it has to be taken with a grain of salt makes the point for us as well, because we even said, yeah, it's great, but to divulge it as evidence is kind of moot because it could be just something random too if you're using what we used which was the radio shack hack at the time mm-hmm. yeah we had a, a very it made made us laugh like crazy we had eaten barbecue um <laughs> the night before for example we got to a barbecue joint had some good barbecue but let's just say it made for some interesting aromas around the manor <laughs> that <whole time>. <laughs> <laughs> um, and some interesting audible phenomena which turned out to not be <laughs> you know how it is but um we had asked the the spirit box uh, we'd asked hey it was a portal i believe geoport we said hey what did we have for uh for dinner yesterday that was a little bit disagreeable and as plain as day we got the word barbecue now wow. that's one heck of a hit right mm-hmm. you know it's what it's one word it was a very clear word but it was so specific that it was not only immensely funny, but the specificity of it just floored me. Right. But in order to get that, it's like panning for gold, isn't it, fellas? Right. You have to <laughs> sift through a lot of, of garbage in order to get those hits. And they often occur when you're least expecting them. Right. That's the same with EVPs, though, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is true. I think the, the worst way to get them seems to be to try, doesn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, now, when it comes to those types of EVPs or that just that type of audio and responses, I think a lot of people think that that these spirits are so not necessarily clever in the sense, but that they're able to either read the past or that they were there somehow, you know, or whatever. But I feel like a lot of people don't pay attention to what their own conversations are during an investigation, because many times we'll say something that we forget. Right away, like, I mean, I'd imagine you guys are probably talking about the barbecue the night before when it was all happening. So naturally, a spirit could come forward and say, oh, barbecue, because I just heard you say that. Uh, Do you think that spirits have some type of ability, sorry, some type of ability to, I guess, read the future or read one's mind or anything like that, uh, that would suggest maybe they're slightly more intelligent than we can give them credit for? I don't think it's a question of intelligence, but I also find it hard to believe that spirits are omniscient and omnipotent. You know, right. it, why would they be? I don't think that's how the afterlife works. Um, I think that they are able to tap into certain things that you and I cannot, and they have perhaps a little more perspective than we do, as if they're seeing things from, you know, a, a better perspective, a larger, broader perspective. But I don't think that they're all seeing and all knowing. Okay. But we do assume that, don't we, far too often. I yeah. yeah, I think we do. And Eric and I have actually had this conversation a couple of times and have kind of dis- disagreed on both sides. So it's actually interesting to see somebody who says, yeah, I don't believe that they can be omniscient or omnipresent, but they can hear us, obviously, of course. So... Um, did you guys get any evidence, like, uh, visible evidence, uh, 
pictures, video, anything like that? So that's the one thing we didn't get as much in the way of physical phenomena. Um, the rest of it we did. We got some good EVPs. We recorded something we all heard, which was the sound of a woman sighing in the empty nursing home wing, and that really did send shells down my spine. Um, we got the. We were in a room. There's a gentleman there called Hank or Henry, depending on his mood, how he likes to be addressed. And uh, this gentleman is a very cantankerous old man. In fact, we're told that he likes to sit on the front porch and throw stones at passing kids. So I like him already. <laughs> and uh, it's well known. It's well known that if you are in his room, you you shouldn't mess with his things. But when when people do, he particularly dislikes women um, being in his room and touching his clothing because some of his clothing is actually still there. So of course, the female investigators on my group were were more than willing to put that to the test. And so uh, one of them, Connie, decided that she was going to do just that. She tried on um, his a piece of his clothing. And not long afterwards, we had three very interesting things happen over the space of a couple of minutes. Uh, we were all in his room, in Hank's room. Uh, we had footsteps moving around outside in the hallway, which was completely empty, absolutely deserted. So I heard footsteps on the floorboards. And then um, my fellow investigator, Eric, was touched on the elbow. Something touched him very distinctly on the elbow. Wasn't one of us. And then the door in plain sight of all of us just began to swing closed. So it was an interesting confluence of, of audible phenomena and also visual, um, physical phenomena as the door itself closed and tactile phenomena too. Now this man in particular, in the, it, it's been around for a while. 1800s. Yeah. Uh, it used to be uh, a uh, a hotel, I believe, right? It did. You've, you've also visited other places that were just as old, maybe some that were older. Do you ever find that during the investigation that some of these spirits are still uh, – like, like is there a communication barrier? Like because there's so many years of past, are they still stuck in that same year? Like for example, a spirit that's from the 1800s died in the 1800s. Do you find some type of confusion trying to communicate with them because they're not understanding the current day linguistics? Or do you think that all kind of, I don't know. <laughs> That's another great question. I mean, one of the older locations I've investigated was the cage, the witch's prison in England, which dates back to the 1500s. You know, when you're looking at an entirely different branch of, um, of the English language that's being uh, spoken, um, but that being said, somehow they do seem to be able to communicate. So I don't know if it's just that if you're around for that length of time, you, you pick up on it, you know, you kind of move with the times or if, if certain barriers, um, are removed, uh, when we die, I don't mm -hmm. know whether that's the case, but I don't think I've ever run into a, a case in which a spirit was so advanced in terms of its years that it was not able to communicate with us because of that. Ever heard of stoicism? Chances are, if you have, you've heard of stoicism with a lowercase s and not stoicism with an uppercase s. Lone wolves, no emotions, antisocial behavior, cold, indifference, all that is stoicism with a lowercase s. Stoicism with an uppercase s is the ancient Greek philosophy and virtue ethics framework that centers on service to the cosmopolis, to include your family, friends, community, and planet, and the development of a good moral character. My name is Tanner Campbell, and I'm the host of Practical Stoicism, a three times a week podcast teaching stoic principles and concepts to anyone interested through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to stoicismpod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just might like it. Now, you had mentioned that the old woman sigh sent chill, chills down your spine. Now, why, why that particular piece of evidence? Well, I'm not saying it's an old woman's sigh. I'm saying it was a woman's sigh. Or a woman's Just sigh, right. I don't know. Um, well, because we'd heard a story about a room in that particular part of the manor. And it, it's a very sad story if it's true. I don't know if it's apocryphal or not. 
But the story goes that this lady um, who resides in room seven uh, was placed in there by her husband um, and never got out. And she was um, absolutely heartbroken. She thought that her husband had institutionalized her because he no longer found her beautiful. And so her response was supposedly that she would tear her hair out, grab fistfuls of her hair and tear it out while she was screaming and screaming and screaming, which is such a tragic story, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and the, the, um, the kind of moan came from the direction of um, that lady's room. So I was really hoping that, that this lady is at peace, that she is not still um, trapped in that personal hell, um, emotional hell at Melvin Manor. Hmm. Well, now, in the book, and jumping back to some of the, uh, I guess, more evil entities that may be living there, whether they're human or not, uh, it, you mentioned an aggressive shadow man uh, that <laughs> yeah. tends to attack visitors in the nursing wing. And then you, well, we also already talked about the the uh, entity that lurks around on the second floor. But <clears throat> has there been any distinction? Like any type of distinguishment between the two of them, could they be one and the same entity, or does there seem to be a clear difference between these two? That's a that's a very astute observation. Um, opinions are split on that. Having talked to some of the people that know the matter really well, um, some of them think that the shadow man, who is believed to be a former patient that lived in room two, which is where he appears most of the time, some believe that he is restricted to just that hallway where he likes to scare off. Um, as many visitors as he can. Uh, another thing that he gets to roam through the whole manor. So they think that he might be one and the same um, with number uh, number one, that we might be talking about the same entity. So there's no definitive proof either way. And I think until I see evidence one way or the other, I'm going to reserve my opinion on it. But some of the investigators feel strongly and opinions are pretty much split on either side of that. Okay. Oh, you know, this is just a theory that I'm just going to ask if maybe you've done the research on it yet. But in regards to the spirit that calls himself number one, have you looked into the history enough to see, like, who maybe the first person was that either died at the hospital or anything like that? Maybe they're referring them to themselves as the first one. I haven't. And there are a couple of reasons. Number one is I try to steer clear of medical records when I can. Um, Malvin, although we're talking now about decades ago with the first uh, first residents, you're always on dangerous ground if you if you probe too much into that side of things, you know? Even mm-hmm. though it's good research, it's, there are some things that you kind of want to leave alone. However, um, number one turned up, as I understand it, when the haunted doll turned up. Um, uh, Rosie. So, I think it would be very unlikely that, that this, this particular entity would wait for decades and decades and decades never show up um, on an EVP, never show up in any way, shape, or form, and then suddenly start announcing his presence or its presence um, when this haunted doll shows up. So I think personally it's more likely that there is a link between that doll and I think it's some entity may have come along with it. Um, and that's what I think the key is to number one's identity. Okay. All right, Richard, we are getting close to the end of the show. So I want to give you a chance to tell everybody where they can find you, find the book, any other information. It's all yours. Sure. Thanks, guys. So you can find me online at www.richardsdeath.net. That's Richard, E-S-T-E-P.net. And The Devil's Coming to Get Me is available on Amazon. It's available on Kindle. And it's also my first audio book. So as of next week, um, depending on when this airs, should, we should be looking at, at um, July 21st or so. It's the first audiobook I've got out that you can get on audible.com. All right. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on with us, and you have yourself a good evening. Thanks. It's been a pleasure as always. Let's do it again sometime. Sounds good. For sure. All right, folks. That was Richard Estep, author of The Devil is Coming to Get Me, The Haunting of Melvern Manor. So I hope you guys check out the book. Richard is always a great guest to have on, and I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, But we're going to go to our break here. We will be right back with Paratruth Radio. This episode is brought to you by Audible.com. If you like listening to beautiful voices like ours instead of reading words, then head on over to Audible 
where you can get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com forward slash paratruth, where you can choose from over 180,000 titles for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome back to Paratruth Radio. My name is Eric. And I'm Justin. And we had just gotten off the line with Richard Estep. He is the author of The Devil's Coming to Get Me, The Haunting of Melvern Manor. Always a blast to have him on. Great guy to talk to and very interesting things uh, that come up in our conversations. Mm-hmm. You know, it, I, I know we ask each other this question after every interview that we conduct, <laughs> but... Is there anything in particular about today's interview that really stuck out to you, especially in terms of the haunting or hauntings that we discussed? Um, I think the biggest thing that stuck out to me was the fact that he brought up the um, the um, ghost box and that mm-hmm. you should take it with a grain of salt because there are a lot of people that will say, oh, it's ap- absolutely a great piece of equipment, which to an extent I agree but um, I, I think it was an important thing for him to come out and say, hey, yeah, it's a great piece of evidence, but unless it correlates with something, it, it's it's basically garbage, pretty much. Um, the other thing that I found fascinating was that uh, there was an entity there by the name of number one plus... Uh, Richard thought that there was a correlation with that entity with a couple of others that were appearing in EVPs. Mm-hmm. Well, and number one has me intrigued as well. And I, I don't think it's so much just the fact that there's an entity calling itself number one, but that along with the shadow man and the malevolent spirit that lives on the second floor. Uh, is there a possibility that these three entities are one and the same? And why would this one call itself the you know number one? Is it just trying to get a spark out of somebody? Is it trying to you know? Could it be a new spirit? We don't know. I mean, what's the significance? Uh, as Richard said, he doesn't really dive too much into the medical records, and I think it would be important to try and do that and just see because even though a spirit, you know, after all so many years, doesn't come forth, I mean, who knows? We don't know what it's like on the other side there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't know, you know, we, we hear about wandering spirits and things like that. Uh, so who knows wh- where the spirit came from or why it's there now. Uh, but like he said, you know, like he doesn't believe necessarily in demonic entities, but he believes in non-human spirits. Okay. Which is cool. That's fine. I get it. Uh, I mean, not, you know, non-human demon or <laughs> to me, they're one in the same. So I don't think it really matters. It's, it's a broad term in this case. Uh, well, I think for, but, I think him and a lot of other paranormal investigators bringing up demon causes fear. So they don't want to scare people. And in a sense, I understand about the same time, I feel that you should be truthful and be like, Hey, I feel this is a demonic haunting. You need help. You know right. what I mean? Well, I mean, and obviously this is nothing like I'm not trying to put down. Oh, no, no, no. It means obviously respect him highly. Um, but I feel like just saying it's non-human in and of itself is a little creepy. If that's the reason why, which I, I don't think is the reason why, um, as he said, he's agnostic. And so he has his set of beliefs. Mm. Um, but for us, you know, the, we consider the, these particular entities demonic entities, uh, at least the whatever's on the second floor and possibly the shadow man. Uh, and in particularly this little girl, mm. especially this little girl, uh, as far as I can tell. And according to the book, nothing really evil has come from this little child, but instead she's more interested in playing and things like that, mm. which kind of gives you that feeling it's luring you know it is trying to lure people to it because obviously even investigators i mean most people tend to have a soft spot for children especially right in the paranormal world those who have passed away like oh this poor child you know she just wants wants to play but it's so hard to get solid evidence from those type of spirits to interact with them uh through evps uh and things like that 
And it almost seems as though they stay quiet for a reason. You know, yes, they want to play. Yes, they want to do this. They want to do that. They want to lure you in, but they remain silent so that you never suspect a thing before they clasp down on you, you know, with their quote unquote jaws, if you. (laughs) And then that's when these spirits start following you home, you know, and these things start wreaking havoc. And it's probably something we should have asked him. I didn't think about until just now. We should have seen if anything had followed him home. You know, oh, during yeah. those four days that he was there, because that happens a lot. Uh, and it seems to be pretty common, at least uh, from all the investigators we've spoken to and authors. So who knows? Man? There's something about, I mean, in reality, like in real life, children are creepy. So there's something about spirit children that are <laughs> it just says it's, it's wrong, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we kind of talked about this um, an episode or two ago about why we associate child with demonic, but human or uh, adult mm. it, it's not. So, I mean, and, and I guess it kind of goes along with personal belief as well, but at the same time, if it is, let's say for argument's sake, it's not a demon. It's a child that got stuck here for whatever reason, like, if you're going to assume child spirits are automatically demonic, how are you supposed to help people or even figure out who the spirit is, whatever, if you're going to constantly assume one side or the other? Now, obviously, from the Christian standpoint, it's it's all spirits are, are demonic entities portraying human spirits. But... If you're coming from the core paranormal belief that spirits are human spirits, how are you going to say child spirit demonic, human spirit not, or adult spirit not, mm-hmm. when it could perfectly be a human child spirit that got stuck here, or all spirits are demonic, <laughs> or a certain one in, in the haunting even i mean it could go along the lines of of uh the idea which i think we spoke about last episode might have been the episode before that in which uh at least biblically speaking it suggested that children believe or children who die young uh aren't left here on earth they're taken right into god's care immediately there's Mm -hmm. no hell for them whatsoever because they weren't able to make that choice um and so maybe the assumption for some reason is that all children who die are immediately in God's favor. And therefore anything that's acting as a child here on earth must be demonic because children cannot be on earth. Now, of course there's no suggestive evidence to prove that Right. it's all based on faith uh, and which is fine. And I, I, I believe that too. I think there's a certain age limit in which those children who do pass away are immediately taken up into God's arms and in heaven for the rest of their lives. Uh, but there, I think there is a cutoff line and that's going to be uh, the point in which a child is mentally able to distinguish the difference between who Jesus is and basically what any other choices they have, uh, whether to believe or not to believe they, when they're able to make that distinction, that's when that timeline is cut. So then if they were to pass away, we'll, now they're at fault, you know, for their sin. So, and I know that's a hard pill to chew or a hard pill to swallow, but that's just a, one of the one of the belief systems based within Christianity, or at least certain denominations of Christianity, mm-hmm. I should say, because there's so many of them. Uh, well, I'd say it's yeah, a, a hard I, pill to swallow and chew. I mean, have you tried chewing oh, pills? Yeah, yeah. It's disgusting. They're, they're bitter. I know. <laughs> Your wife made me chew pills once. <laughs> she didn't make you see. I wasn't doing it. drugs. I, we weren't doing drugs. It was Tylenol. I mean, they were drugs, but they weren't drug drugs. Yes. <laughs> but still, that stuff was bitter. And she was like, chew it up because then it'll go faster, faster. Yeah. Faster. Yeah. But <laughs> that stuff's bitter. <laughs> but I did it. I did it. Hopped it like they were pezzes and pretended they were fruity, but they weren't. <laughs> like worse than grapefruit. Anyway, uh, get back from that rabbit trail. 
So, yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons as to why people think children spirits must be demonic. I don't know. Take it or leave it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Or for those of you who have a different opinion, please feel free to reach out to us. Let us know what you think. Yeah, I would love to hear your guys' thoughts on it because, quite honestly, Eric and I, or Eric and I and any guests can debate it until we're blue in the face. But I would love to hear your guys' thoughts on it because I'm kind of stuck in what I'm believing, and I'm sure Eric is the same way. So I would love to hear you guys' thoughts on it. Um, any- well, but I, I am open. Well, so I'm willing to hear what you got to say. Just because you know, we're stuck in our beliefs doesn't mean we're not going to be open to other thoughts. It just means it may not sway us either way, is that's what I'm true. saying. It may not be swayed. We're hard to sway. <laughs> um, any further thoughts for you before we head out for the evening? Uh, no, I think that's pretty much it. It's a good, good, good time. Good conversation. All right, folks. That is all we got for you this week. As always, make sure you're checking out all the places that we're at. Like, share, subscribe. Uh, make sure you're checking out TMV Cafe and Fringe Radio Network, um, as well as pretty much everywhere you can find us. And check out paratruthradio.com, where you will find the link for the Patreon account. It is still active. Um, we are trying to get to uh, another crime crack. I have been behind on that, so I will get on that. So until next week, folks, well, you'll find us same time, same channel. My name is Justin. And I'm Eric. Peace. To help us remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut. Oh, come on. It wasn't come that on. bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that help shape your childhood. Find us on cannedairpodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network.